0: I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Alejandro Soto. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 30th. Coming up, we talk with physicist and author Gregory Benford about science, science fiction, traveling to the stars, and more. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. For over two decades, astronomers have been finding planets around other stars. These new planets, called exoplanets, are so abundant that last week in the journal Nature, astronomers reported the discovery of an exoplanet in orbit around Proxima Centauri, our nearest neighboring star. This newly discovered exoplanet, dubbed Proxima b, has a minimum mass roughly 30% larger than the mass of the Earth. Proxima b's year is a very swift 11.2 Earth days since the exoplanet is 20 times closer to its star than we are to our sun. Proxima Centauri is a red dwarf star, a type of star that is dimmer than our sun. Proxima Centauri is so dim that even with Proxima b's small orbit, this exoplanet receives only 65% as much energy from its star as the Earth does from the sun. Despite this, Proxima b may be habitable, If it has an atmosphere, various models of the new exoplanet show that under the right conditions, Proxima b may have evolved a habitable climate. To prove this, however, scientists will require observations from future telescopes to first confirm an atmosphere and then characterize any atmosphere. Over the next decade, we will likely learn much more about Proxima b, our newly discovered neighbor. Some people think their
1: smartphone is their life. But could your smartphone save your life? According to a report at last week's meeting of the European Society of Cardiology, smartphones can be used to detect atrial fibrillation with existing hardware. A low-cost application has been developed that uses the phone's accelerometer and gyroscope. If the person starts feeling odd symptoms and wants to check their cardiac status, they lie down, Place the phone on their chest to acquire a heart signal, and the app checks for atrial fibrillation. Around 70% of strokes due to atrial fibrillation could be avoided with early detection and medication. However, atrial fibrillation often occurs randomly, and so it's difficult to detect by visiting a doctor. Using the smartphone app, the investigators detected atrial fibrillation with a sensitivity and specificity of
0: more than 95%. On the science calendar this week, CU Boulder's Fisk Planetarium will present several full-dome films, taking advantage of Fisk's state-of-the-art high-definition full-dome digital display system. Among the films to be presented, Solar Superstorms, will play on Friday, September 2nd at 7pm. This film takes viewers into the tangle of magnetic fields and super-hot plasma that creates the sun's dramatic flares, violent solar tornadoes, and the largest eruptions in the solar system, coronal mass ejections. Audiences will see this activity of our nearest star and learn what might be driving it and how it could affect the Earth. And on Sunday... September 4th, they will show the full-dome film, Cosmic Origins Spectrograph, showcasing the research of CU Boulder scientist Dr. James Green. This film highlights the current research of the spectrograph aboard the Hubble Space Telescope and how it provides an unprecedented view into the vast spaces between galaxies. The presentation will be followed by a live lecture, Q&A, and Star talk. All that at Fisk Planetarium on the CU Boulder campus. For more information... Go to their webpage at fisc.colorado.edu.
1: are listening to How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. So what are the qualities that make a good scientist? What are the qualities that make a good science fiction writer? Those skills do not necessarily overlap, but when they do, they can not only produce wonderful works of speculative fiction based on hard science, but they can produce exciting new ideas for science research. Our guest on today's show is one of those rare breed of professional scientists and science fiction writers, as well as an educator. Dr. Gregory Benford is a professor of physics at the University of California, Irvine, where he has been a faculty member since 1971. Benford conducts research in plasma turbulence theory and experiment and in astrophysics. He has published papers in fields of physics, including condensed matter, particle physics, plasmas, mathematical physics, and even in biological conservation and geoengineering. And if that weren't enough, Dr. Benford is a Nebula Award-winning author of over 20 novels, including Timescape, Jupiter Project, Artifact, and Against Infinity. Perhaps his best-known books are part of the Galactic Center Saga series of six novels, starting with In the Ocean of Night, first published in 1977. I had the chance to catch up with him somewhere between the lab and his next novel and talk to him about science fiction and fact.
2: Welcome to How on Earth, Gregory. Glad to be here. Always happy to be in Boulder. Uh, It's a great place to be.
1: So tell me, you have this perhaps unique or unique-ish background as a professional researcher and a professional science fiction writer. How have you found that the science informs your science fiction or vice versa?
2: Scientists have an unusual advantage in writing science fiction because, of course, we get the material for free. It's like having a police officer write police procedurals. (laughs) So I found that uh, all the many many exciting things in science feed directly into the stories that I choose to write and the ideas more or less spontaneously appear
1: can you give an example of some ideas that you've used from your experience that fed into a story
2: well i've done a bunch of radio astronomy and i looked particularly at runaway neutron stars of very high velocity which we see in the radio frequencies uh because of the plume of radiation at the front part called the Bow Shock. So I wrote a story called Bow Shock in which a f- an astronomer studies these and discovers that one of them is a starship. Ah. Do you use
1: some of your physics background? How hardcore
2: <laughs> do you get into the physics? It's more that I use the whole social environment of being a scientist. So The characters, particularly in my novel Timescape, are engaged in research. They have the usual problems of professors and lab techs, and I just simply use that as the problem set that they solve going through their lives, together with the sociology of how scientists interact with each other. It's a very odd tribe in some ways. It is. It's
1: its own (laughs) unique subculture with its own ways of doing things, and certainly notable personalities, do you find you pick bits and pieces of people's personalities or physical gestures or things like that that you use in your stories?
2: I steal everything, (laughs) as any good novelist does, Uh, particularly my best-known novel, Timescape. I have named famous scientists like Fred Hoyle or the Burbages from the 1960s. But I also have invented ones that are closely resembling uh, people like Carl Sagan or uh, other greats of the era. So I am really a realistic novelist. And the narrative cloth I use, which adds, because it's science fiction, an element of the fantastic, is really a small part of the whole operation.
1: And maybe using some uh, of the perhaps not so famous people, some of your colleagues from, say, University of California in San Diego or something like that?
2: Yes, in in Timescape, I use them from San Diego and in several later novels, notably Cosm. uh, I use them from my own institution, uh, UC Irvine, thinly disguised that if you change the physical appearances, I've noticed that most people can't identify themselves when they've been stolen and used in a story.
1: So people recognize how they look, but they don't recognize how they behave. Right. (laughs) Well, what about in the other direction? Have you found, either in your experience or other scientists who read science fiction, if not necessarily write, get ideas of directions to study from the scientific postulates in science fiction writing?
2: Well, there's a long history of scientists getting ideas out of science fiction and vice versa, of course. The... uh... Famous example is that Louis Zillard, after reading an H.T. Wells novel that used the term atomic bomb, suddenly thought of using radioactive elements, later, obviously, uranium. <laughs> and he had that idea in 1932 and patented it to keep it secret, gave it to the British Naval Office because he thought it was so important. And of course it was, but he got it directly out of the Wells novel.
1: How good have you found that old science fiction has been in predicting actual science in the future? And I know it's a little bit of a feedback
2: loop there. Science fiction is predictive in the sense that a fellow who uses a shotgun is uh, a (laughs) marksman. You'll hit something. (laughs) You'll hit something. And most science fiction hits really nothing because science fiction is an emergent literature that came out of the scientific and engineering community in its various ways, particularly famously in ma- Amazing Stories, the first SF magazine 1926, came out of a group of radio magazines. The point is that this is a literary expression of the uh, burgeoning importance of science and technology in our whole society, and that has only grown with time. People think of flip phones going back to the Star Trek communicators and
1: things like that. There's a difference between the predicted technology versus the predicted science. It might be easier, would it be to say that you can extrapolate technology more easily than science?
2: Tech is easier to foresee than science, certainly. The flip phone from Star Trek was actually lifted from science fiction stories earlier. There's very little in Trek that was original. The way that society thinks about the impact of technology is crucial. Obviously, it's the biggest driver in our times. And many of the political issues we see are reactions to the emergence of science as the way of seeing the world. You had written an essay that was called
1: Waiting for Shakespeare about who is science fiction's Shakespeare. What were your thoughts in that essay and have they changed and who you think might be the Shakespeare? Hmm.
2: Uh, The essay reaches the conclusion that maybe we don't need a Shakespeare in the sense that who was the Shakespeare of jazz, right? Ah, Right. Uh, Because it's largely improvisational and it's a very broad community. And you could pick targets. I mean, the first real SF novel, I think, was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is two centuries ago. Yes. But you might say, really, the most Shakespearean and influential works are probably movies like 2001 or Blade Runner. Or among novelists, the fellow most used and turned into visual media and widely read now is Philip K. Dick, a guy I knew for 30 years and was very interesting and so forth. But no one would have been more surprised at the spread and fame of Phil Dick's work than Phil Dick.
1: Interesting. The names that would initially come to mind would be, you know, Arthur C. Clarke or Bradbury or Wells or what have you. But you're saying possibly Kubrick.
2: Possibly Kubrick. Because remember, thinking just narrowly in terms of novels is uh, a little, well, more than a little naive, because we live in a culture in which the interaction among the immersion the arts, let's face it, science fiction and movies, came about in the 20th century. They were born together.
1: I think you mentioned in your essay, too, that's not so such a cheat or a way of going around it, because Shakespeare, although we see him as literary... It was a performance art. He wrote for performance
2: and the public and the visual medium. He wrote for the masses. <laughs> he did. And, the groundlings and, 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 and acted and wrote poetry and plays. If there had been novels, he would have written one. Interesting.
1: <laughs> well, if you just tuned in, you are listening to How on Earth, KGNU's science show. I'm Joel Parker, and I'm speaking with Gregory Benford, physicist, science fiction writer, and all-around visionary. We've been talking about science fiction and physics, and I would like to move into a topic that arguably until recently was considered purely science fiction, but is starting to be looked at more seriously as science possibility, and that's interstellar travel. Gregory, you are working on a project called Breakthrough Starshot. Could you tell
2: us what that is? It's a long-range program funded by Yuri Milner, uh, a billionaire, to develop the first starship. Uh, My own twin brother, Jim, uh, said in the opening line of an essay that's in the book Starship Century, uh, the first starships will be sail ships, meaning very light spacecraft with a payload propelled by powerful beams from the Earth. I and many others are working on this right now, and the interesting question is, should we use lasers or microwaves? And it's incredibly hard to do. It's several jumps ahead of our modern capabilities to move something at 1% of the speed of light.
1: So, this is as opposed to solar sails, which use sunlight to move around. You're talking about using light from lasers or, or some Earth-based source to do it. Why create the power rather than use
2: the sun? Because the sun drops off as 1 over r squared, and pretty soon you get no acceleration. Uh, also, you can't get speeds greater than about 10 kilometers a second. The speed of light is 3 times 10 to the 5th kilometers a second, so <laughs> got a long way to go.
1: Is it that the Earth-based laser or microwave or what have you has a... Higher power density that you can use for propelling?
2: Far higher. Uh, the sun gives us here about a kilowatts per square meter. We're talking about putting in something in the range of a billion watts per square meter. So a million times larger. A lot.
1: So, And you need that to get up to the speeds to get to a star in what time scale?
2: A, a few decades. So, so therefore... A person's lifetime. T- 10% of the speed of light, yes. A person's lifetime depending on the person. <laughs> right. And you're talking a
1: flyby, not a rendezvous here.
2: Right. There's no way to break. So far there's no way to break. Uh and so it's a real problem, but but remember, this is like building a railroad. Um then you send as many trains as you want. <laughs> the big expense is up front. And so you fire off, Lots and lots of these ships. Some of them won't survive, uh, but you'll get, a again, a shotgun view of, say, Proxima Centauri, the closest star, which we now know there's a planet around.
1: Exactly. What a coincidence there. So uh, the Centauri system was the original target for Starshot, is that correct? That's right. It just happens now that we heard in the news that they have announced that there's a planet around one of the stars. Can you describe that?
2: Proxima Centauri is the closest, a small red dwarf star uh, with a very narrow habitable zone. But there's a rocky Earth-like world, we believe, from the uh, Doppler shift data, uh, in that zone. And it has greater than about 1.3 Earth masses, maybe as high as 3. So it probably has a larger atmosphere and can hold in heat better. Uh things look good for that habitability and that's the nearest star it's part of a triple system the other two a and b romantically named are very much like our star and the probability that they have planets around them is quite high
1: and why is that is it just that we're pretty much everywhere we look now we're finding planets
2: that plus the fact that you got a habitable planet a rocky planet around a very small star probably means there was a lot of mass in the debris field that formed the whole system, which is, by the way, about a billion years older than our star. So it's
1: had a much longer time for, perhaps, development of life.
2: Yes. It's a billion years up on us. Yes. And we know that can do a lot in a billion years. Yes. Intelligent life takes quite a while to make, and then it takes off, at least as far as we know. At least from one example. Right. The, um, in, the N equal one problem, we call it. Right.
1: Uh, just so people can picture this in case they're looking for real estate speculation, can you describe what this system is like? You said it's maybe an Earth-sized planet around a cooler
2: star? Very cool, very big in the infrared. And so it's a drab world in a way. Not a lot of visible light, but a lot of reds. And it, it has such a close orbit that's uh, in fact the whole orbital period is less than 12 days that's that's a year that's 12 days long very quick seasons <laughs> yes that the star is very big in the sky
1: so this happens to be a target for starshot what is the the project timeline the time scale here for starshot
2: starshot anticipates being able to send a relativistically speeded craft within 30 years that's the run-up time to develop the system. And then you send lots of them.
1: So 30 years from departure
2: or 30 years from arrival? Oh, 30 years from now, it it departs. Another 20 years, we hope, and it's in the bag, maybe. Depends on what you think the velocity will be. Sure. It'll be 20 years if it's 0.2 C. Describe an
1: idea design concept for the spacecraft.
2: Um, <clears throat> so far, we think of a very small craft that is the the operating part the payload is about the size of your thumb and it's a very smart chip that we'll be able to make in 30 years and the entire craft is about four meters that is 12 feet across because that's the part that that gets hit by the beam and accelerated but the real payload is very very tiny
1: what are the current technological challenges that you think still need to be but
2: can be overcome the biggest problem is the beam and how to make it and the sail and how can it survive the powerful beam and remain operating. And, by the way, be stable on the beam. We, we do not know, in principle, if we can do this at all. So
1: stable on the beam, you mean rotation? Yeah. Will you have it, to
2: be really well-centered? Think of trying to balance a plate on the end of a broomstick. It's better if you spin the plate, but that's not a guarantee.
1: Is there ground or near-earth? testing uh, that is part of the design concept here to try
2: out some different designs? Uh, yes, my brother uh, Jim and I have been designing the first generation of experiments that we will propose be done, uh, which will probably be driven by microwaves. And we'll try to fly a sail in the lab, literally in a, in a sil- vertical cylinder. It's like, uh, I call it a, uh, a, an electromagnetic wind tunnel,
1: in this electromagnetic wind tunnel, you'll be able to try some different designs to see what might be most stable and things like that. Exactly. Is this is a privately—it's not NASA-funded. It's privately-funded venture. Why?
2: First, NASA would never do a thing like this. It's far too away. Uh, let's put it this way. Uh, there's a good chance NASA will never go to Mars in a manned expedition, and much less to the stars. And uh, remember, the exploration of the new world was largely driven by entrepreneurial wants. Not that anyone is going to make a a profit out of this. But if you want to do something really risky, you better ask a wealthy, imaginative person and not a bureaucracy.
1: So you just said there's not necessarily
2: a profit in this. What is the motivation? Exploration. Uh, What's over the next horizon? After all, we're the... uh, we're the species that got out of Africa and took over the planet in bewilderingly fast times, because that's built into the DNA of being human.
1: Are there other concepts out there other than Starshot or just ideas? I mean, the Starshot, a, it's a great idea. What other ways have people talked about as far as interstellar
2: travel? And again, we're talking unmanned at this point. Right. Well... Everybody thinks about interstellar rockets. It turns out they're far more expensive because you have to provide so much reaction mass. Uh, So that's why my brother and I have worked for a number of years on the whole idea of beamed sail ships, as we call them. Uh, Not an idea we invented. Uh, Bob Forward, 40 years ago, wrote papers about this. But they look as though they are the least expensive and the most within reach. We really don't know how to build an interstellar rocket at all.
1: Tying back to science fiction, are there any ideas you've seen in the science fiction literature for interstellar travel that you think
2: are viable? Well, the beam-driven craft go back, even though they were they were man, to uh, Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell and uh, the Moat in God's Eye. Uh, so, and they got that, those ideas directly from Bob Forward who was a neighbor. So that really is a
1: very tight cycle here of interaction between the scientists and the writers.
2: Oh, that's right. The notable thing about science fiction is that it's the only part of fiction that actually interacts with the real world on a regular basis. <laughs> uh, after all, what do mainstream writers do? They go to the grocery store and they watch television. Well, okay. Uh, but, <laughs> but we have access to these amazing ideas that keep changing. And unlike historical fiction say, in which you largely know the parameters, the excitement of science fiction, is that when you turn the page, you really can't be quite sure of what's on the next page.
1: Whether you're wearing your research scientist hat or your science fiction writer hat, would you dare to speculate, if we were to sit here 20 years from now, what would the state of space exploration be like?
2: Uh, I think... The industrialization of the solar system is about to happen. We will be getting more and more resources from above our atmosphere in obvious ways like mining, but also things that people don't think of immediately as pioneering, such as uh, doing the maintenance on geosynchronous satellites. There are billions of dollars of, of satellites, c- communications satellites, sitting in that orbit, which have single-point failures, and you could fix them upgrade them, and put them back into operation with very simple robotics that we can't do now, but certainly could within 20 years.
1: Otherwise, they're just so much more space junk.
2: Right. Uh, Now, even any kind of mass in space in the long run is worth something because you've already paid the bill for getting it up there. So with the advent of 3D printing, you might be able to strip down satellites and reuse some of their components and make new stuff. All of these are windows that have only recently opened.
1: Well... We'll set up a schedule to meet a decade or two from now and uh, see how things have gone. Sure. Great idea. Well, (laughs) thank you very much for
0: being on the show,
2: Gregory. It's been a pleasure. It's always fun to come to Boulder. Thank you.
0: That was Joel Parker speaking with physicist and science fiction author Gregory Benford about what it is like working in those two worlds and how they interact, and also about the Starshot project to send a spacecraft to the nearest star. For more information about Starshot, go to breakthroughinitiatives.org.
1: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered
0: by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Three Mice. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org
1: to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes
0: and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Alejandro Soto. And I'm Joel Parker.